Welcome to the Kook Center Podcast, and here's your host... Over the line! Huh? I'm sorry, Smokey, you were over the line, that's a foul. Bullsh**, market eight, dude. Uh, excuse me, market zero, next frame. Bullsh**, Walter, market eight, dude. Smokey, this is not nom, this is bowling, there are rules. Hey, Walter, come on, it's just... Hey, man, it's Smokey, so his toe slipped over a little, you know? It's just a game, man. This is a league game. This determines who enters the next round robin. Am I wrong? Yeah, but I wasn't... Am I wrong? Yeah, but I wasn't over. Give me the marker, dude. I'm marking an eight. Smokey, my friend. You're entering a world of pain. Walter, man. You mark that frame an eight, you're entering a world of pain. I'm not... A world of pain. Look, dude, I... This is your partner. Has the whole world gone crazy? Am I the only one around here who gives a about the rules? Mark at zero. They're calling the cops, man. Put the piece away. Mark at zero. Walter, put the piece away. Walter? You think I'm around here? Mark at zero. All right, it's zero. You happy, you crazy League game smoke. Michael Preston. Welcome to the Kooks in Hour Bull Eligible Edition. I think anytime we can start a show off with the Big Lebowski, probably gonna be a pretty fantastic show, right? You can buy the bowling, Big Lebowski, and I'm not lying, we have a fantastic show. Yogi Roth from the Pac-12 Networks is coming up next. This dude's got so much good info on Luke Falk. And UCLA this weekend, and my goodness, you're just going to be absorbed for over 25 minutes with him. Joey Kaufman from the Orange County Register, more good info from about UCLA, just you know, because it's a team I haven't watched a lot of this year, and I, I needed to know a lot about. And Joey's got all that information from you. And then we visit with our old pal Jacob Thorpe from the Spokesman Review about where WSU is right now, their mindset, kind of going into this game against UCLA. He's got more great insights for you. In fact, we have so much. We have so much content. We had to split the Kook Center Hour this week into two shows because we have a very special show coming up on Thursday. Two very cool guests. I'm not going to tell you who they are, though. You're going to have to wait to find out who they are. But given the timing and time of year it is, you might be able to figure it out. I'll give you that one little hint. But two very cool guests coming on Thursday. Uh, another edition of the Kook Center Hour this week. You get so much of it. Uh, and I think just like anybody else, I'm, you're more enthusiastic about it when the football team wins and when things are going well. And my goodness, are things going well? Six and three, nine games into the season, you are bowl eligible. You're bowl eligible, Washington State University Cougars. And it's such a, I I am so pleased, and I I love saying it over and over again. I keep saying it. The Washington State Cougars are bowl eligible. They can go to the postseason this year. They get those all-important dozen or so postseason practices that are so important for making this team better. They get all of that, especially with so many young guys on defense. Uh, You get all of those things to make this team better. And not only are you bowl eligible, you didn't need to save it to the last game of the season, to worry about it in the Apple Cup, to have to beat Colorado and do that, or to have to go to UCLA and beat a very good Bruins football team. You came out, got punched in the mouth, quite frankly, against ASU. You absorbed that blow to the jaw, and you came out, and then from the point it was 14 to nothing, you outscored ASU 38 to 10. What's our favorite saying on this show? That win had 
stones. And again, I keep coming back to that word because it is so true. The mentality of this team has just flipped. You'll hear Yogi talk about that here in a few minutes, about how important it is from the top down that they just believe that in no matter what situation they're in, they don't get too high, they don't get too low. You try not to look at the scoreboard. You're going to naturally look at the scoreboard anytime, but you try to ignore it as much as is humanly possible. They did that on Saturday. That pick Luke Falk threw was about as uncharacteristic a throw as you will ever see him make. And it was probably the worst throw he has made all year. I think he would probably tell you that, that if there was one throw he wishes he could have back, it would be that one. ASU had the ball in the red zone after that, already up 14 to nothing, and that had the feel of a game that we had known too well last year in 2013 and 2012. A game WSU should have been able to get up for, should have been able to be competitive until the end, and the door was going to get slammed shut before you barely had a foot inside the house. Defense steps up. Todd Graham, for whatever reason, doesn't kick a field goal on that fourth down. Thank you, Todd. They get a big stop. And from then on, you felt better about things. You felt better about the Cougs' chances going forward. Outscoring ASU 38-10 to 10 the rest of the way. The defense clamping down on ASU's offense and limiting Mike Berkovici and his running backs better in that zone read game. Two turnovers for Washington State in that game. Two big turnovers. And again, how many times have we talked about this year? What a difference those turnovers make. Now it's 16 on the year compared to 8 all of last year. They've already doubled it up and they've got three games to go. It's just making sure you can end more of those possessions without the defense scoring because the offense had to do so much last year because you really had no idea if the defense was going to stop anyone. You had to score on every on every drive. You had to press on every drive. And now they don't have to do that anymore. How different is this team than the one we thought we all saw on September 5th? How different? I mean, it's just... It is light years different. And I've said this before and I'll say it again. And I say it kind of differently every week. This is the weirdest 6-3 and three I think anybody could have predicted. You might have thought they were going to be 6-3 and three at this point. But you sure didn't see it with losses to Portland State, to Cal. You probably saw that loss to Stanford. But in a game against Cal where you were actually up by two touchdowns, losing that one, and you sure didn't see losing to Portland State. Probably saw losing to Oregon, probably saw losing to Arizona, probably saw losing to Stanford, or to Arizona State too. That's where I thought the losses were. This is a very weird 6-3. and three. But this team has shown you that no matter what, and as Brian said on Sunday very eloquently, you should believe they're going to win football games. I mean, I just as a fan and my mentality is not important whatsoever towards this football team. It doesn't matter what I think, which I don't know why you're listening to that. But, you know, I, I, I feel so different from just how I felt even after that Wyoming game. It didn't really feel like you dominated them as much as you should have. You got away with that win in Rutgers. You, be, you did beat Wyoming, but it took you half an hour to really get up for them. And it's just how amazing, how different you feel now here in early November. With six wins, now we can talk about bowl games. Now we can talk about all these things. We can talk about those extra practices. 
we can talk about how much better this football team has gotten. The biggest thing for me is that you just look down at the schedule. Just ignore that Portland State game for a minute. Say you're just looking at eight games. Okay, You're 6-2 and two in those eight games. Go back and look at how they've performed. Because in the past, in 20, even in 2013 when they were eligible, they were up and down so much. They got absolutely spanked in a few of those games that year. Against ASU, they got spanked at home. They absolutely got the floor waxed with them on Halloween. They got waxed by Oregon State and Pullman. They got beat up by ASU. They got the crap kicked out of them by Stanford. Even in that last bowl eligible season, now go to this year. Okay, ignore the Portland State game for a minute. Got by Rutgers with a comeback. Beat Wyoming easily. Only lost by six to Cal. Beat Oregon. Beat Oregon State. Beat Arizona. Lost by two to the number eight team in the country. And then beat Arizona State. The peaks and valleys on that roller coaster aren't as high. You're not getting big emotional wins and then crashing down for three straight like they did in 2013. It just seems like the emotional maturity on this team, even though there are a number of freshmen and sophomores playing and contributing in a lot of ways, and heck, there's their, their leader at quarterback's a redshirt sophomore, even with all that, this team feels more emotionally mature, more emotionally ready for the ups and downs of a football season than any previous iteration of this team under Mike Leach. You see that in the results. You see that in the way they play their games. You see that in how they behave on the sidelines, never getting too far up, too far down. This is a football team that has the chance to win eight games in the regular season. Well, they actually have a chance to win nine, technically. But I think it's pretty likely they can get to eight. They can probably win two of these last three. But they have a chance to do that in a season where after that first week, I I don't care who you are, you felt awful. You felt felt bad. You felt down. Now how do you feel? It's a credit to these players. It's a credit to these coaches. It's a credit to everybody involved with this football team. Mike Leach included. All the coaches included. All the ancillary support staff included. All the players. Everybody. Everybody's involved in getting this team back up on the horse. And they have done it. Six and three. Nine games into the year. They're already bowl eligible. Play relaxed and loose the rest of the way. That's what you've got coming this weekend against UCLA. Another ranked opponent. And you're on the road and Jim Mora does not coach well at home. You got another really good shot to hit somebody in the mouth. And to not get hit in the mouth like you did last weekend. But they came back. They won that fight. That round was won by ASU, but they lost the fight. This feels good. The Washington State Cougars are bowl eligible. Yogi Roth, Pac-12 Network's coming up next. Joey Kaufman, Jacob Thorpe later. An absolutely loaded Kook Center Hour. One of two shows this week. Man. This is fun, isn't it? Coming up right here on the Coop Center Hour.
Back here on the Kook Center Hour, we are now joined by Mr. Yogi Roth of the Pac-12 Networks. Yogi's got a movie coming out as well, Life in a Walk. It hits iTunes on December 1st. Life in a Walk is a story about Yogi inviting his dad on a walk along the Camino de Santiago. Changes their lives forever, guys. Make sure you check that out on December 1st when it hits iTunes. Then, Yogi, it has been ungodly hot in Los Angeles lately, I've heard. Have things finally cooled down a little bit, or was it... Not too bad where you are in Venice. They have, and it's uh, it's actually really windy. I'm looking out my window right now. My surfboards are flapping around in the wind, so it's a little. Uh, it feels like winter here. It's made the turn in November. Finally made the turn to cooler weather in LA, which does, which I, as a person who has lived there previously, it actually does happen there. A lot of folks don't know it actually does get down in the 30s some nights. It is actually pretty chilly there. So, um, yeah, you... I don't like that either, man. You know, I came out here for a reason. <laughs> Well, you played your college ball at Pitt, though, right? So you got to at least be used to it, kind of. Oh, totally. But I, I always tell, like, my parents and my friends, I'm like, I put my 22 years in of snow and cold. Until <laughs> I get to 44, that balances puppy out. <laughs> you got the honor, I think, I, I'll call it the honor, of seeing Luke Falk's first start in person last year in Corvallis. And I know... Your your favorite term and what you like to talk about is graduate level football. Is guys who are are just playing at you know that graduate level. Is it kind of fair to say at this point that maybe Luke Falk's even playing at a doctorate level of football? The kids won three offensive player of the week awards so far. I mean, the way he is playing is just unreal this year. Yeah, he's doing a nice job. I, I don't think he's he's doctoral PhD yeah. yet. <laughs> yeah, you know. You know, he's had his moments for sure. You know, if anybody was going to get that term and moments, you know, he and Goff have had moments. Rosen has had flashes. Kessler has had flashes. Um, but I think you you got to be ridiculously consistent. And there's times where he's not. You know, you look at the last game, and I'm just kind of working my way through the film now. And, you know, he's not as sharp early on, you know, as he has mm-hmm. been probably in games past. Which, which is, look, it's hard. You know, there's a lot going on, especially – you, know, you look at the ASU game, and I can remember calling that game a year ago, and he had such a good first half and struggles in the second half against mm-hmm. all the pressure. Um, so I was really excited to, to work my way through the film. I'm not completely done yet evaluating it, but uh, from what I've seen, it's been fun to watch. And I mean, he, What I love about him most um, is, is two things. One, when you look at the actual playing, the mechanics, he plays at the same platform all the time. Mm-hmm. And you can watch um, the Arizona State game, and Mike Berkovici a lot of times plays at different platforms, meaning... If you watch his head from the end zone copy, it's up and down. It moves 6 to 12 inches at times. You know, he kind of plays on his toes. Mm-hmm. Luke plays ball cleats in the ground. And I believe that's how you need to throw. You know, I, need, I think if it's a clean pocket, that's where you got to be. And I, I just see him playing at such an even level mechanically. And then when you look at the other side, he's playing at such an even level mentally. So much so that you rarely know the difference between a completion, interception, touchdown, incompletion. You know, like he's... He's each taken on Mike Leach's personality, mm-hmm. and I think when you look at the rebuild, he got to sit in on meetings for a year. He got to learn the offense while watching Connor Halliday. Yeah. He got to absorb what Mike Leach is all about, you know. And I think you just add to what's going on this year, and obviously his coach at that position. And, um, I just see, I just see all amazing growth. And like I say on all the broadcasts, you know, him, him and Jared Goff are the two guys that I, I literally try to watch every snap they play, just because it's fun. Yeah. I mean, it's it's been watching him grow just in these nine games this year compared to those 
kind of three and a half he played last year. I think we obviously saw him struggle a little bit, as you would expect a redshirt freshman to, uh, you know, kind of being thrown in there after the redshirt senior goes down with a broken leg, a catastrophic injury like that. Is it surprising to you at all, given what you've just said, you know, with his ability mechanically and his mental ability to just kind of always stay even keeled? Does it surprise you to see him be this good in his redshirt sophomore season, now basically with a full season's worth of games under his belt? Mm-hmm. When I was in training camp, I can remember sitting down with a couple of players on the side, and, you know, just kind of just catch shit and breathe. And, yeah. and I, I'm a big Peyton Bender fan. I think he's a really gifted player. Mm-hmm. I think he's a gifted passer. Um, you know, he's probably more of a gifted passer than Luke. And I said, what's the difference? And uh, they just, they said, you know, Luke's got these qualities about him that are just innate as a leader. And that's mm-hmm. what Peyton doesn't. But um, Luke's just jump off the page. And I call him dude qualities. You know, it's presence. It's when you walk in the room, you set the temperature. You don't allow the temperature of the room to, to make you adapt to that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's him. And, and I think that's Mike Leach, right? Mike Leach clearly is comfortable in his own skin. Yeah. Um, Luke is as well in a different kind of way. In kind of a, I, I, know, uh, I know I carry a big stick kind of way. Like, I know I can make that throw. <laughs> and then when you watch him make a cover two hole shot throw, which yeah. we've seen a bunch, right? Shouldn't complete it, puts it on a rope. In the one spot, you're not supposed to, but the only spot there could be a completion. Mm-hmm. To me, that's a stinger that he has. And, and then you break it down. I mean, this kid, he gets rid of the ball. You know, he dropped back, obviously, more than anybody. So there's more opportunities. But, you know, he's got, he gets rid of the ball in less than 2.4 seconds. Mm-hmm. You know, Cody Kessler's like 2.7. You know, so different schemes, different systems. But he's not getting sacked. He's not taking shots at times. You know, like, he understands where to go with the ball. Uh, his completion percentage when he gets rid of the football is higher than anybody in the is, is almost as high as anybody in the Pac-12. Same and Kessler at the very top, but he's completed seventy three percent of his passes when he gets rid of it. And I know that's the system and it's check it down, etc. But mm-hmm. when you watch his eye discipline, it's fascinating, right? Yeah. We all know the scheme, the plays. It's not like it's some exotic playbook, but most guys in this system run a pure progression system from an offensive standpoint, meaning. I go from one to two to three. I'm going through a pure progression regardless of defense. Mm-hmm. And that's how this offense fought. But where he's really turned into a gradual-level passer is he can overlay a defense and be a pure progression passer, but be able to live with pre-snap looks and be able to say, oh, okay, here they go. They're going to rotate strong. I'm going to go weak, but I'm going to hold the front side safety and come back to game marks on a seam route or a post route or river craft on a drag route or whatever mm-hmm. it is. And to me, he's always a hair ahead. And you don't see that a lot with pure progression passers, and you don't see it usually in the red zone. And when I watch him in the red zone get rid of the ball, that's when I'm like, nice job, that's impressive. Even the fifth down play, mm-hmm. you know, it's just Arizona State fans <laughs> hate that. For him to get rid of it that quickly and understand where to go, make a second window slant throw, I love that. You know, and yeah. that's hard for guys to do. That's hard for Marcus Mariota to do in an up-tempo spread offense, let alone Luke Falk. So those are the things that make me nerd out and say, wow, let's rewind that and watch that again. I'll take the fifth down. I mean that you know. I mean I know I know that stinks for ASU fans, but I'll I'll take it, man. You know, <laughs> that's that's. I think Colorado's at least familiar with how that goes. Who did they play with that was in like '92 or something where they got the fifth down? I think it was against. It wasn't against Michigan, was Colorado. it? Colorado had a game like that as well. Yeah, um, there's a. We did a piece on it on the Pac-12 Network, so the fifth down game. It's great. Yep, that's right. I I know a lot of folks, you know, talk about 
the Heisman Trophy with Luke, or at least there's a little rumblings in some part of the fan base. I don't think it's way too early for that kind of stuff. But you look ahead, and assuming he progresses and continues to become a better passer by his senior season, I know a lot of folks kind of view Mike Leach's air raid offense as gimmicky. So Graham Harrell, it was hard for him to kind of get a lot of looks for the Heisman Trophy, even you know when he had what a lot of folks consider the best season uh, in the air raid offense. But just taking all the Heisman, you know, all that kind of stuff away. This isn't really a gimmicky offense, is it? Because it's so it, it's difficult to understand, and you need that repetition in it to kind of to to really get a good grasp on it. So for a redshirt sophomore like Luke Falk to have that, that's pretty special. What he's got between the years is pretty good, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I hear people call it gimmick at times, and I understand that. And I could see an NFL scout saying that, or guy who's coaching the West Coast offense saying that, and that, that's the offense I was trained in. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reality is that the job at the quarterback position is to gain mastery over your system. And and that's why I was never okay with people taking shots at uh, Marcus, you know, a year ago before the draft. Mm-hmm. Oh, he runs this whatever system. Well, he owns it, right, and he dominates in it. It looked the same thing as Luke. And I think the quarterbacks, I think in the NFL last year, it was like 70%, 80% of passes were from the gun. You know, so the game is, is altering. You know, people have been talking about that, how the, the throw game has altered to a large degree because of that. A, because the defenders are ridiculous coming off the edge, but also the way college quarterbacks are getting trained. And I see it at a high school level with the Elite 11. Mm-hmm. Um, there's two pure drop-back passers in the country, in my opinion, that are really big time coming out of high school that are taking five- and seven-step drops. So it, doesn't very, it doesn't happen very often. So what happens is when you get to college, you can see mechanics get really bad. You can see guys not take drops, not be able to become rhythm passers, just stand back there and throw. You could argue early on, maybe even a tech, some of the guys maybe did that at times. You know, I remember having a couple of their games way back in the day. But when I watched Luke... Um, He's a rhythm-based passer. Mm-hmm. You know, he's still on rhythm, even if it's a one-step slide and falls out in a quick game, or it's a quick three because it's an intermediate passing game. You know, like he still can throw on rhythm. And I'm you know, mm-hmm. looking at the teams right now in the Pac-12, and I'm thinking, all right, next year, who's the face of the conference, right? Yeah. Let's just pretend golf leaves more than likely, right? Mm-hmm. Um, who's it going to be? You know. I don't think you're going to give it to Jake Browning or Josh Rosen yet because they're so young. Right. Uh, Seppo Lufau, they haven't won enough. He hasn't performed at a high enough level. So, you look at some of the backs, and I don't know, there isn't anybody like Paul Perkins, if he's back, maybe, but he's not a demonstrative guy to a large degree. So, mm-hmm. yeah, no, Lufau, to me, he's a, he has a chance to be the poster shot for the pack. Well, but if they can finish strong, I mean, if they win this weekend, which it's going to be. Uh, they're, in my opinion, they're a favorite going into this game. Usually, I called the UCLA game last weekend, mm-hmm. um, and UCLA is gifted up front. In the back end, they're okay. They're, they're good. They're athletic. They fly to the ball, but it's advantage Washington State. Why it's advantage Luke Falk, in my opinion. Yeah, um, they go win that. Then there's no reason why they can't win out. And now they're the Stanford game, which I'm sure your fans will argue that they got a couple calls. Maybe it's a different type of ball game. Yeah. Um, they're playing the Pac-12 championship, and I was there at training camp, and there's people around the corner at the coffee shop saying, like, we should be out. So, yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean they're going to get a lot of love, and they should this offseason if they could finish strong. Mm-hmm. 
I, you know what? Uh, yeah, we do think that about the Stanford game. Actually, I think there's is probably no doubt about that one. But like, but we, I think we got made up the the fifth down, like we mentioned earlier. I think we we kind of got one back a little bit there. You talked about Luke's leadership qualities. Um, you know, Peyton Bender's a good leader, but Luke just kind of seems to have that quality that a lot of the guys on the football team look up to. And you talked a little bit about maybe the unrest with Mike Leach, and that was especially vocal after the Portland State game, I think. Um, how much of leading this team back to now 6-2 and two after that game with, you know, uh, a, a being in the end of it, being in at the end of the game with Stanford, how much of that is Luke Falk's leadership ability as the guy who's the quarterback of the football team? How much of that is him kind of taking this team and going, guys, it's going to be okay. Does he take that from Mike Leach, or is some of that just kind of inherent in who he is? Well, I mean, there's always an inherent side, you know, and I don't want mm-hmm. to come off as brash or I talk here, but I, I feel really strongly about leadership. Um, and it's because I saw when I was at SC that the, a coach's job is to get your players to think a certain way mm-hmm. and to talk a certain way. If you're a coach in major college football, let alone anywhere, and you're saying, all right, I'm going to count on my players to lead this team, I don't think you're going to have a job for very long. Yeah, I just don't think that's accurate, especially with 20, 21-year-old, 22-year-old kids at best. Um, you can't count on the lead. The goal is to make them feel as though they're leading, to give them the freedom, to give them the opportunities, to create the opportunity in a team meeting, in a practice session, You know, making sure that you pull out a couple clips from a game and put them uh, on the screen in front of the team in a team meeting. That's the artistry. To me, mm-hmm. and, and talking to Coach Leach, you know, we've had a lot of talks about this over the last couple of years. We've got to know each other about philosophy around leadership. And obviously he's as well-read as anybody, and he gets that. And your, your job as a coach is to, in my opinion, defer all credit to your staff, to your coordinators, to your players, but be masterful, be the point guard, be a step, two steps ahead of everyone at all times, mm-hmm. and know what you're doing. And, and to me, that's what I see. You know, when you talk to the players and they say, man, if Mike Leach didn't have a scoreboard up uh, in the stadium, he'd be the happiest guy around. And that's the, that's the philosophy around there. It's just the next snap. It's just the process. It's mm-hmm. not about what's on the scoreboard. And he had to say that early on because they were so bad when he got there, right? Yeah. He's got to keep competing. you got to keep playing. Well, then it becomes a mindset. And that's why I, I don't see I – don't, we don't see them freaking out when they have leads. We don't see them losing their minds when things don't go their way. Um, week one at Portland State's a great example. Stanford gave me a great example of the lead. Even though they don't win the game, I don't think you saw a team choke. I saw yeah. them go against a really good team. A couple calls you could argue did or did not go their way, but um, – I think that's just who they are. You know, they're still not elite in the Pac-12. I don't still, I don't think they're a top-10 team in the country. I think Stanford is. Mm-hmm. I think that they're on their way to being able to compete for the Pac-12 championship game. And the Stanford game was an awesome set of circumstances and opportunity to do so. Yeah. And they're building this program. And they're going to take that in recruiting and keep adding to these players that they have and keep adding to an underrated defensive line in my opinion, to keep adding to an offensive line that needs you know, to continue to grow and get better. And yeah, and as they grow with their competitive temperament and they get wins, they'll grow in recruiting. And yeah. that's everything. And, and to me, that's that's the beauty of the leadership of Mike Leach. You know, mm-hmm. and to really answer your question, I'm going to go in the full circle. <laughs> yeah, give credit to Luke Falk with the demeanor that he has. But let's keep in mind where he gets a lot of that. One, where his family, how he grew up, everything he's been through, no mm-hmm. doubt that shaped him. 
but how it's been molded into an all-pack 12 quarterback, in my opinion, one of the top senior balls in the country, mm-hmm. is because of the staff to get around every day. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about uh, the quarterback Washington State's going to be facing this weekend. We've talked so much about my favorite quarterback in the conference, Luke Falk, although I think we need to work on the facial hair a little bit. He needs to grow in the full you know, like goatee if we're really going to make that chin strap thing work, but that, that's another issue for another day. Uh, Josh Rosen had a, uh, a decent weekend last weekend. UCLA pretty thoroughly took care of Oregon State. He went 22 for 33 at a couple of touchdowns. What has this freshman done to impress? You talked about him earlier, maybe not being the face of the conference next year. He's, you know, still got a ways to go, but what has he done that's kind of been impressive this year? You know, coming in and filling in for Brett or, you know, taking the spot of Brett Hundley can't be easy in Westwood. So what about him has impressed you so far this season? I mean, can I say everything? You know, um, Josh is awesome. Yeah. I mean, you're going to love to watch him play. I've been around him since he was 16. Um, his story is incredible. You know, he's on his way to becoming a tennis pro, one of the top-ranked uh, players in that sport in the country, let alone mm-hmm. the world. You can imagine him with his size and his athletic ability. He probably would have delivered on that expectation. Mm-hmm. And he left that game because he, he hated being in an individual sport. But he also gained the competitiveness that I think that you can only gain in individual sports. Mm-hmm. And applied that to now being a leader of a team or the quarterback of an offense, to me that's an instant difference maker that separates him from a lot of guys. Um, add in the way he was brought up, the way his mind works, he's a savant. You know, you asked him his favorite part of the game, and he said, uh, it's, it's chess on steroids. I love the mental side of dissecting an opponent. Mm-hmm. He sees the field, um, I think, as well as anybody, uh, probably other than maybe Cody Kessler in the conference. You know, he, can, he has an extremely wide vision, and he can get narrow in a heartbeat, meaning he can see everything. He can process the D-line and the back end of the weak side corner, mm-hmm. and then, boom, he can get to his curl flat read and understand where guy's going to go. Now, what I love about it is he's also human, and he's had times throughout the season where he's gotten you know fooled a couple times by cloud coverage. He's gotten fooled by late pressures. He's made mm-hmm. poor throws and poor reads. Everything that a player who's a freshman goes through for the first time. Where he's been impressive, he hasn't made the same mistake twice, at least that I've seen on tape for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got great command of specific situations, and he's in total command in their system to a degree. And he makes the hard things look easy, and the easy, easy things look even easier. Mm-hmm. So when I look at this game, I'm so jacked to watch him go up against Alex Grinch and your defense, because I called the Cal game, and I watched yeah. the plan you put together to slow down Jared Goff. And from the first snap to the end, you fooled him a couple times. Yeah. You know, and there were opportunities to pick six that didn't happen. First snap of the game, I think, right? It, was, it looks like it's going to be three deep, and they roll yep. and cover two, and you throw yep, it right. and shake on the other way. Mm-hmm. You know, so, and that happened a couple times. So I, I cannot wait to watch. And I, and I watched your guys' plan against Stanford. Loved it. Watch your plan. Um, I'm just getting through the game against Arizona State. It's awesome. Um, you're way better on that side of the ball. Right? Mm-hmm. Personnel isn't caught up completely, but we all knew that coming in. Uh, but, but I'm excited because they're going to be tested. You know, you're going up against a quarterback who's surgical. Duarte, Thomas Duarte, their H-back, tight end kind of guy, mm-hmm. is, is awesome. He's kind of like River Craycraft to a degree of how he plays and where he plays. Mm-hmm. You know, he's always in the slot. He's incredible hands, really gifted route runner. You watch the second touchdown he had. He just understands leverage of linebackers. Was awesome. It's Jordan Payton. Um, he kind of had an off game, had a couple of drops, but 
he's really creative, very similar to Gabe Marks in terms of working the defense, rub routes, all of those types of things. So and I'm excited. And then the back, Paul Perkins, you, you'll watch him in the holes, and this is going to be, in my opinion, the difference maker of the game. He has burst in between the in the box, in between the tackles, I think differently than anybody else. He's mm-hmm. quicker, I think, than Devontae Booker. He's not as good of a back overall, I don't think. Uh, but I think Booker's going to play for a long time. But you look at him in between the tackles, he's explosive. He reminds you almost of Marshawn Lynch in terms of how he puts his foot in the ground and gets so low, boom, he can put his next foot in the ground and change direction. So the, the backers are going to have to tackle really soundly. I think mm-hmm. that's going to be, as much as we love the quarterbacks in this game, I think that's going to be the biggest key. You coached with Pete Carroll at USC for a while and, you know, all the pressure and expectation that comes with coaching at a big program like that. And every week, USC would get kind of the best game from who they were playing. You're always going to get somebody's best game. For UCLA, I I think they have three games left on the schedule. And, you know, for a, a, a team that's ranked as, you know, USC was when you coached there, it's kind of easy to look at an opponent like Washington State and then look ahead like UCLA has. They have Utah next after WSU, and then they will play USC uh, in their annual rivalry game. How do you keep the players from looking ahead to those two games? Because it's got to be in the back of their mind that, you know, God, I got to worry about Utah and USC and Washington State. Yeah, they're bowl eligible, but they're still kind of wazoo. So how do, you, how do you keep players from kind of looking ahead to maybe a game they've been anticipating a little bit more? It's an awesome point. It really is. I think that uh, you don't have to do much because of what happened last year. Mm-hmm. You know, UCLA, we followed them on the drive on the Texas Network for documentary series. We were there every day, every couple of days, you know, and they got a chance to go to the Pac-12 title and compete to maybe make an argument for the postseason and they don't perform against Stanford. And they all admitted that they kind of overlooked it because Stanford was wazoo last year, right? They were, mm-hmm. but they won seven games at the time or whatever the record was heading into that ball game. Um, it wasn't anything impressive. I, just, I think they just look at that. And, I, and calling that game, being around that team, they've got a really cool focus. It's senior day, right? It's their last home game. Um, I, 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 don't, I don't think you're going to have that. I, I really don't. I yeah. think you're going to see a really competitive game. I think that UCLA's got to be careful with their penalties. Um, and I know some of them, um, you know, you can argue them for sure, I'm sure, and, and they have. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of false starts on the season, not just last week when they kind of called out the defensive line of Oregon State, a lot of holdings on the season. Um, it's going to be fun to see your guys' defense, you know, Washington's defensive scheme against their front. Uh, defensively, they're okay. You know, they're above average. they got players. Um, but to me, it all, uh, on that side of the ball, it's going to come down to the front. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kenny Clark is the best defensive lineman in the Pac-12. He's awesome. Just watch, watch him for two drives in a row. Just focus on 97. You'll see what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, then you look at Tack McKinley coming off the edge. He's going to be one of the fasters, not the fastest guy um, he off the edge. I mean, he's faster than uh, a guy in Oregon who you saw a couple weeks ago. You know, he's he can fly off the edge. You look at... Deion Holland can fly off the edge. Aaron Wallace leads their team in sacks. You know, he's just got a constant motor. You know, so it's the backer position. Can they work the slot? You know, is River Craycraft going to be okay? Mm-hmm. You know, I know Kyle Sweet played well, but is he going to be healthy enough or where they can run those underneath routes against uh, Kenny Young? You know, can they run it against um, the other backer, Jayon Brown? You know, can they run? Can they beat Ishmael Adams in the slot? 
that's going to be on the third and sixes, third and fives, third and sevens. Can they make those conversions in one-on-one? I think they can win the route, but they can get it off, and can he move Falk make sure he's a throwing lane? He's proven that he can, but I think when I kind of look down their schedule, um, this pass rush, you know, it's different than everybody else. Stanford's really good as well, but I think nobody's as explosive as Kenny Clark. Yeah. Um, and I don't think guys are as fast as those guys off the edge, so that's where I see this ball game. to be honest. I'll leave you off with this question, Yogi. It's... You know, Washington State's 6-3 and three through nine games. It's the first time they've been bowl eligible this early in the year uh, since 2006 when they were bowl eligible in 2013. They did it just before the Apple Cup beating Utah to go 6-5. and five. Is it hard to kind of keep fo- keep your team focused after they've kind of broken through that magical barrier? It kind of, you know, goes back to our last question of keeping a team focused and not wanting them to look ahead. Is it is it hard to do that when a team's won that that bowl eligibility mark they've gotten there already and now you know you got three games left on the schedule yeah well you're, i think you're lucky you're not playing colorado this weekend and yeah no disrespect to them um but that would have been you know an opportunity if i was looking at the schedule saying, oh, i wouldn't be surprised if colorado got this one because Colorado's competed with everybody i mean up and down their schedule they've competed um and they should have won a bunch of these games so i'm glad you know you should be glad you're not playing them i mm-hmm. think when the L.A. roster you guys have and with what what that means when you go to the Rose Bowl, I don't think it's going to be hard to get them up in this game. I think this is going to feel like a championship game. Um, it's an elimination game for UCLA for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we'll find out for Washington State. And, you know, I, I don't think they'll have a problem getting up for it. I, I do think if it was the Buffs, that would be, I would call it up. You know, I'd say this has got an opportunity for an upset mm-hmm. uh, because of the point you just referenced. But I think coming down here to the Rose Bowl, you know, it's going to be an awesome atmosphere. Um, it's seniors and all this stuff. I, I think that they're going to be. I think they're going to be prepared. And I honestly think when we look around the conference, um, I look at that game. I look at the game on call with Washington and Arizona State. Um, they're really cool games. You know, when you look at this conference mm-hmm. um, coming up this weekend, I'm really excited to watch how this one plays out. Yogi Roth of the Pac-12 Networks. This man knows his stuff, and he knows a lot about Luke Falk. And I am. So excited to talk to you more about this kid for hopefully two more years, Yogi. I mean, he's got the chance to be really special. Thanks for coming on, man. Oh, come on, of course. Anytime. Joey Kaufman from the Orange County Register. We'll talk a little bit more about UCLA coming up next on the Coop Center Hour. Back here on the Cook Center podcast, and uh, we're going to chat a little bit more about UCLA, the Bruins uh, in the Rose Bowl this weekend facing off against Washington State. Joined now by Joey Kaufman of the Orange County Register. He covers UCLA football and basketball for the paper of record in the OC. And uh, Joey, where's the fan base at right now with UCLA sitting at 7-2, and two, number 19 in the AP poll? Uh, they got to be pretty happy with uh, how things are going in Westwood. 
they're doing a lot better than they were about three or four weeks ago. I think they really hit a low point after that Stanford loss. Stanford's a team that UCLA's had a real problem with ever ever since Jim Moore got there, even dating back to when Rick Neuheisel was the coach. But that was their eighth straight loss to the Cardinal. Moore's been here four seasons. Uh, they've lost to the Cardinal five times. So that was a real low point coming off back-to-back uh, losses. And this was a mm-hmm. team people thought could win the South and, and challenge for a playoff spot. And two losses early in the season didn't seem to, to bode well for those hopes. But they won three straight, and mm-hmm. the Colorado game wasn't overly spectacular. That was kind of a game where they almost lost. Yeah. But then I think to go up to Corvallis to win 41 nothing, I think a lot of people – are thinking maybe, hey, they could win the South. You know, we were actually, that was going to be my next question. You actually talk about that two-game losing streak. You had that loss uh, to Arizona State. That was kind of a backbreaker. And then you go up to Stanford and just, frankly, get dominated by the Cardinal, like you said. Now eight straight losses to them. You come back and kind of get healthy against Cal, and even though Colorado, I think they doubled them up in total plays as well, but then absolutely took care of business against OSU and Corvallis. How important for that, or how important was that uh, for this football team uh, heading into uh, the last three games of the year are no gimmies for them, but so how important was it to get back kind of with that mindset of, hey, we can go out there and we can really win some football games? Pretty important. Probably the biggest change over the last, um, kind of three games. Is, I think Josh Rosen's kind of picked it up another level. And with mm-hmm. all the injuries on defense that they've had, they're not going to replace guys like Miles Jack or Eddie Banner. They no. just don't have the, the guys and the horses behind them. But I think the fact that Josh Rosen and the offense has, has picked it up a notch is pretty important. And even with Rosen, if you go back to early in the season, he was able to make big-time throws against Virginia. Mm-hmm. He had that teardropper, 30-yard throw to Duarte, I think, that had people sizzling. And and he's always been able to do that, but interceptions were a huge issue against Stanford early in the game if you were pick six. Um, but the last three, last two and a half games, or no, the whole wing streak hasn't thrown an interception. He's mm-hmm. got 131 passes in a row now at that interception, which is longer than Brett Hundley ever won. So he's done mm-hmm. a really nice job of taking care of the ball and still being that dynamic passer that wants to be. I want to talk about Josh Rosen. You see, getting all these questions from me, it's like you can read my mind 900 miles away. I like that. Uh, Josh Rosen, of course, a freshman quarterback. If I could do that, I would be in another business. <laughs> you'd, be, yeah, you'd be making a lot more money than covering a football team. Yeah, yeah. that's for sure. Um, Josh Rosen, just a freshman for UCLA. And like you said, he's replacing a guy like Brett Hundley, who was a really good quarterback for the Bruins. What does he bring to this football team? Anything different than what Brett Hundley does for uh, maybe Cook fans who might not be uh, as familiar with Josh Rosen? What, what does he kind of bring to this football team? that might be a little different than Brett Hundley? I think he's he doesn't have the running ability that Brett Hundley did. He's never going to be a threat really to run. They're rarely going to have him go out there and run as much as Hundley did. He, but he does have quick feet in the pocket, mm-hmm. um, which I think is very helpful in terms of kind of staying within a tighter space and not getting sacked. So you're not going to see him get sacked a ton. Of, I, I, I'd have to look it up, but a week ago UCLA had only given up nine sacks, and that was uh, the fewest in the conference. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing I think that he does differently than, than Hunley did. And he gets rid of the ball, I think, a little bit quicker. Hunley had a tendency to hold on to the ball for a long time. Rosen gets it out quicker, um, and he'll throw it away a little quicker. And these are things he's done lately. He didn't necessarily do that earlier in the season. Mm-hmm. He had a problem against BYU where there'd be pressure, and he'd try and keep a play alive and roll out to his right. And I mean, he threw two picks against BYU doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one thing. And his deep ball accuracy is, is pretty good. He'll, he'll connect on a lot of those throws, which is pretty mm-hmm. uh, impressive for an 18-year-old. 
You talked about that offensive line a little bit, Joey. They're actually number one in the country in adjusted sack rate. They only give up sacks on 3% of Rosen's dropbacks. And like you said, something like only nine sacks given up in nine games this year. So they're only averaging one sack allowed per game. Not only is that good for the passing game, but it sounds like it's good for guys like Paul Perkins, who's the team's leading rusher, right? Yeah. I mean, they got a couple guys. Perkins is, is the big kind of name, but lately they've been using a lot of Sosa uh, Jamabo. He came in against Oregon State. He ran for 90 yards, but he's mm-hmm. had three or four games this year uh, where he's been the team's leading rusher. And some of that comes in garbage time and whatnot, but still – they got a couple guys behind it. Nate Starks is another guy uh, who's, who, who've gotten a lot of carries. They don't tend to give Perkins a ton of carries. He's not a guy who's going to carry the ball 30 times a game like you're going to see with some of the other running backs mm-hmm. in the conference. Those, those kind of divvy it up. So you talked a little bit about these running backs. We've talked a little bit about Josh Rosen, how good this offensive line is. We have good receivers in UCLA, too. You've got Jordan Payton, Thomas Duarte, like you mentioned earlier. Is there anybody else in the receiving court WSU needs to worry about? Their passing defense has gotten better this year. Uh, Still a little sketchy at times. You haven't really seen them tested, I think, by a really great passing defense so far. Even Cal struggled a little bit against them. Is there anybody else the Cougs need to be worried about other than those two guys? Uh, those are definitely the two main guys to, uh, to keep an eye on. One guy to know is Darren Andrews, who's the, who's the starting slot receiver for the last four games. His first start was at Stanford, and he caught a 70-yard touchdown pass from Rosen. And then against Oregon State, he had a career-high seven catches. But he's a guy who gives him a different helmet. For whatever reason, UCLA, is, most of their receivers they've recruited over the years have tended to be more possession receivers. They don't have necessarily that quick speed or that game-changing speed out of mm-hmm. the slot. But Andrews is one of those guys who could develop into that. He's got a lot of natural speed out of the slot position. He, he and Rosen, for whatever reason, have had a pretty good connection. Even going back in the fall camp, uh, Rosen, when he was splitting reps with, with Jerry Neuheisel, Rosen was often running with the second team. Mm-hmm. And Darren Andrews was a second-team guy at that point, and they developed this nice connection out of the slot. But he's a guy who last four games his role has continued to grow we talked about or you talked a little bit about the UCLA defense uh early on and the injury problems they've had obviously the big marquee one is Miles Jack and his decision uh to leave for the NFL uh and to get out of school now and go ahead to the NFL which I I I personally can't blame him for he's got a ton of talent but there have been other injuries for UCLA defenses as well what has worked for them to kind of patch things together, so to speak, on that defense, because they're still a pretty decent defense uh, despite losing uh, everything that they have on that side of the football. What's kind of worked for them to patch things together, so to speak, to uh, to at least keep playing at a relatively high level? I think uh, when they lost Eddie Vanderdose, they put in Eli Anker, who's a big guy, the redshirt junior, and he's over 300 pounds. And he's, I think, been a pleasant surprise for them. I've I don't think the drop-off between him and Vanados has been especially steep. The thing mm-hmm. is, they've tried with the linebackers, and they've done this a lot more lately. They've done a lot more stunting, and they've done a lot more. They'll bring a linebacker up to the line of scrimmage, and then they'll have him drop back. Mm-hmm. Or they'll have, they did this against Cal, where they would have two down linemen, and they would actually start the nose tackle, Kenny Clark. He would just start in the two-point stance. So they've tried to, I've noticed the last couple of games, they've tried to be more creative with their alignment. They still run the have a 3-4 base defense, they might go on a 3-4 nickel or they're on a 3-4 on a dime package. But it's typically going to be out of that 3-4. They just kind of try to do a little tweaks and stuff mm-hmm. where they're not having maybe three down line and they might have two and they may have four, trying to kind of maybe confuse teams a little bit. 
One thing I noticed about the UCLA defense, Joey, was that they've got, I, I believe it's 11 picks on the year, but they've only forced three fumbles. They haven't recovered any of them. Is there any reason for that disparity? Is there just kind of one of those weird things about college football that, you know, just that's how it's just kind of worked this year for the defense? I'd, I'd probably chalk it up with one of the more weird things. The only other yeah. thing I could think about, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't really know. They don't, uh, we don't get to watch practice. So I don't know if they do any. Like I, you hear about some teams doing turnover, turnover Tuesdays, or they have this big emphasis on stripping the ball or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if they do that. I didn't notice anything like that in the fall, uh, fall camp. So I couldn't, I couldn't, wouldn't be the best to really say, but. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah, that I just I noticed that it just seemed weird to me that you only get th- only three force fumbles, haven't recovered any of them. WSU's had a lot of fumble luck with Luke Falk. He's fumbled the ball eight times. None of them have gone to the opposing team, so we like that very much. Part of it, yeah. Part of it, they haven't they've pressured quarterbacks, but they haven't exactly gotten a lot of sacks. Uh huh. Where they're where they're banging the guy, where they're where they're touching him. So that may be an issue as well. Their their sack totals are are down from where they were a year ago. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's, I, it just it is kind of one of those things about college football, right, where you just kind of look at it and go, man, that's weird. <laughs> it's a, yeah. That's a, part of the wonderfulness of the sport. Uh, the Air Raid is a pretty famous offense. I think, you know, a lot of folks, uh, you know, it, it's pass-heavy, obviously. Uh, you're going to – WSU's running the ball a little bit more effectively this year. Heck, a lot more effectively, actually, this year. What do you think UCLA's plan is going to be on defense? You mentioned they're in that 3-4 base a lot of time. Are they probably going to run a little more nickel, maybe a little bit more dime packages against this, or are they going to dial up some pressure on Luke Falk like uh, ASU tried to do a little bit? They were down on their normal blitz rate, I think, on Saturday against Falk, but do you think UCLA UCLA will respond with more coverage or maybe a little heavier on the blitzing? Probably lean more coverage. Last week against Oregon State, and Oregon State's not really known for being all that pass happy. They ran a lot of nickel and dime stuff too. I think part of that is just because they've had a ton of injuries in linebacker lately, and they have more healthy defensive backs, so they're going to go with go with nickel. Part of it, I think, will also contingent on whether Isako. Um, I'm going to butcher his last name, uh, but it's it's their inside linebacker. If he's if he comes back and he's healthy, that may dictate a little bit of what they're what they're able to do. Mm-hmm. But I would. We kind of expect heavy nickel, which is what they tend to do a lot anyway, using Ishmael Adams as that nickel uh, safety slash slash corner. But what, what they did against Cal was a lot of three-four nickel stuff with stunting and maybe lining up two guys to try and confuse Goff a little bit about where pressure might be coming mm-hmm. from. And they were pretty successful getting to Goff that game. They sacked Jared Goff, I think it was five times. So I would expect something similar from that. I'll give it, I'll give it a shot. Isako Savainea. Savai. It's it's a really long Polynesian name, and I I can't even get I can't even get through all the syllables on that one. <laughs> I, I just copy and paste it. Yeah, that is that is the nice thing about uh, that is the nice thing about writing. You just gotta spell it right, right? Right. You don't gotta you don't gotta say it. Any chance that UCLA kind of looks past Washington State in this game? Because like I mentioned earlier. They're closing out the year with a top 15 team in Utah, and then they've, of course, got the Crosstown rivalry with the Trojans. Uh, two really difficult games, or uh, and, and UCLA, or USC, of course, has the addition of being a rivalry game. Is there any chance they kind of look past Washington State, or do you think this coaching staff can do a good job to kind of rein them in a little bit and keep them focused on the Cougs this week? I think there's definitely a chance of, Usually, maybe overlooking for this one. On the one hand, you could sit, you could sit here and say they'll be focused. 
It's senior night. They only have three games left. They'll be focused on the task at hand. On the other hand, uh, under Jim Moore, they've lost six times to unranked teams. A lot of their losses in recent years have been at home. Uh, three of the losses last year, Oregon, Utah, I'm missing the other. Um, but a lot of those losses last year were at home. Mm-hmm. The Arizona State losses home. They're 16-5 and five under more in true road games. They're oddly better than average on the road and oddly below average. Uh, yeah. down, so that's another kind of an odd deal. I wonder how attendance will be. Attendance hasn't been particularly great this season. The Colorado game in the fourth quarter, probably the Rose Bowl was not even half full. Uh, the Cal game was a night game on a Thursday night, and that was maybe half full. Jeez. It's kind of been very quiet, and they haven't had that home field advantage that they haven't had in the past uh, for whatever reason. Um, so that's, I mean, how many people want to be in? The game starting at 745, will people be motivated to come? So I could definitely see him kind of overlooking it as well. Give me just a kind of prediction about how you think things are going to go on Saturday. Maybe not necessarily a final score, but uh, if you had to pick a winner right now, uh, who would you pick and why would you pick them? I would lean toward UCLA just because I feel like this, uh, what's, hurt, what's hurt the Bruins in the past has been teams that are going to pound the ball inside because UCLA's run defense has not been very good all season. They've given up 200-plus rushing yards in three different Pac-12 games. Mm-hmm. Even yards per, per rush attempt, if you factor in pace of play and all, they're still bottom third of the conference in rush defense. But the passing defense, has been pretty good, and, and based on how they matched up against Cal, I, I would I would think they'll be able to defend pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would take UCLA in a close one. I think it's going to be kind of wild and, and weird, and some definitely Pac-12 after dark. <laughs> it's it's it is very after dark, even in Southern California this time of year. The 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 sun does go down early, so the lights will be on at the Rose Bowl, and everybody will be parked on the golf course. I can't remember the name of the golf course, but I think it's a, actually pretty cheap. Uh, golf course there that they play on but uh it, it'll be a really fun night at the rose bowl joey kaufman from the orange county register joining us here on the kook center hour thank you sir hey no problem thanks for having me man all right coming up next we're going to talk to jacob thorpe he covers the Cougs for the spokesman review you know him on the kook center hour Back here again on the Kook Center Hour, we're just loaded with incredible guests this week, and last but definitely not least, a friend of the program, beat writer for the Spokesman Review that covers Washington State. We've talked about the Kooks so much, bowl eligible, I want to keep talking about them because this is just a cool thing. Jacob Thorpe, we worked this out a second ago, you have been covering the team for now two bowl eligible football teams. Uh, have you have you consulted with the school about uh, Lucky Charm or any, you know getting compensation for being a Lucky Charm yet? Well, you know, I, I really need to figure out what my actual overall record is since covering the team because I came after the Stanford game in 2013, so mm-hmm. I was there for that run to the bowl game, but I missed a few of those losses early on. Uh, you know, I 
I didn't do too well last year. You know, I, I had some bad apples in my program, but you know, I think this year I've, I've really, uh, you know, figured it all out and turned it all around. So I think I'm hitting my stride, my stride, and I certainly yep. think an extension is in order. Yeah, see, J- Jacob's hitting his stride, and the football team is hitting their stride at six and three. Let's talk a little bit about that football team you covered, Jacob, and uh, I mean the mood afterwards had to be good. I mean, you you're in the post game press conferences with these guys. And, you know, I, I know that they'll say, you know, we still have business to finish, but just compared to where they were last week, the overall mood of everybody coming into that room had to be just light years better. Oh, you know, it, it, it was, and it was today during the Monday press conference as well. You know, it, it is really funny, and you kind of want to call them on it during the post-game press conference. We're all sitting there, we're all on our computer. The the football Twitter account starts tweeting out these videos of the, the locker room celebration really trying to play up the bowl eligibility. Uh, everyone's jumping and screaming and chanting, we're going to a bowl game. And we're right next to the locker room. We can hear them doing this. Mm-hmm. And then they, you know, stoically watch out, sit down. Oh, oh bowl game? Did, did we did we qualify? Uh, I had no <laughs> idea. We, we don't pay any attention to that. And it's just kind of like, guys, you, you're, you're selling the bowl game on Twitter. The football program clearly is playing this up. It's, yeah. it's okay to acknowledge it. And, you know, Leach, who sets the tone for all of that, of course, you know, he said, yes, it's always very significant when you qualify for a bowl game. That is that is uh, an achievement, and it does have these very tangible impacts on the program. You know, you've got to think that getting 15 extra practices for uh, Jerry and Moulton and Frankie Louvu and Logan Tago is significant. That's almost another set of spring practices that they get to have now. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, Leach is a, a coach who takes advantage of those spring, uh, those bowl practices and does a lot with the young guys during those bowl practices. We've talked before about uh, this team where last year, you know, even though with Mike Leach, uh, you know, he, he preaches the don't get too high, don't get too low, don't pay attention to the scoreboard, just go play football. Uh, last year, they didn't seem to do that as much. They were scoreboard watching, or at least, you know, not necessarily just looking at the scoreboard, but it kind of felt like they rode the roller coaster with the rest of us during this game. This team doesn't feel that way this year. Does that have to do with Luke Falk, or is that just kind of the mentality of everybody on the football team that we're just not going to let ourselves get too high or too low, uh, no matter what the score is? Well, you know, the, the thing with all these kind of mantras and uh, these program-wide, uh, you know, the kind of ways of doing things, like saying don't scoreboard watch, uh, play the next play, is that they all sound great into a, into a player. It, it makes sense intuitively. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you want to do that. But until you kind of have some experience doing it and success doing it and kind of learn what that feels like and then pick up the wins from doing that – it's probably not that easy to put into practice. There's probably a certain amount, I would imagine, of not thinking that you're scoreboard watching while you're scoreboard watching and not really knowing what it it feels like to be on the sideline mm-hmm. down 10 and to not care and to, to be able to go out there and still have just as much confidence in the next play, to really just think, okay, I'm going to win the, this five-yard slant, do everything I can with that, and then we're going to just focus on the next play from there, to not – Put, try to put it into any sort of context mm-hmm. and I, I think at some level you just have to have success doing it and you know I, and I think there's also sort of a tipping point with a lot of those things they you know you you have 90% buy-in everything seems to be going really really well but there's just 
it's not entirely program-wide. There's just a little bit of doubt, and that ends up holding the entire team back, and so you don't really see the benefit from the 80% of the players who are doing exactly mm-hmm. what the coaches ask and kind of understand. And I think what we saw kind of against Cal, really, is the program started to kind of hit that tipping point, and the players were able to just go out there, play, do everything that the coaches had kind of envisioned. And when that happened, then they started to kind of reap the rewards that were promised to them. And once that started to happen, then they kind of they had that aha moment. Oh, so this is what he's talking about. You know, these kind of yeah. uh, Im- imprecise sayings, this is what they're referring to. This is how we do that. And oh, look, now we're winning these football games. You uh, now with, you know, uh, already at practice, it was hard to tell, you know, who might have been hurt, but you could tell who's limited. Now without the ability to report on that, you, you kind of have as much information about that as, as we do. I think it's kind of fair to say. With River Craycraft's injury being whatever it could be, we saw Kyle Sweet step in on Saturday and play a really nice game. And Dom Williams, of course, had uh, his usual big game along with Gabe Marks. I think Robert Lewis, too, for that matter. I think there's no probably position on the team better set up to absorb an injury loss in this wide receiver core given all the talent they have on it well you know that that's true and it's not so true because they, they do have a lot of talent at wide receiver and in a pinch you can shift guys around but what they mm-hmm. really do is they have is they have this surplus of talented outside receiver right uh you know they've got a lot of x's and a lot of z's but uh, as we you know saw in this last game the, the backup wide receiver was a guy that had a, a few snaps against Arizona and like, you know had his red shirt burned a couple of weeks before that, really hadn't seen the field much. And part of that is the fact that, you know, why would you take River Craycraft off the field if you don't have to? Yeah. And so, you know, it, it, they, granted, they do have depth there. We just haven't been able to see it. But th- that said, those guys are kind of cold. You know, we haven't seen all that much from Tyler Baker this year, even though he had a really good fall camp. And when he was pressed into duty last year in a very similar situation, he performed very well. Th- they have those guys, but, you know, you still got to step into a game against a good defense and perform. And the mm-hmm. fact that uh, they've got this, you know, River Craycraft cloning machine down at Santa Margarita High School uh, <laughs> seems to really be working out well for them because you, you really didn't see any drop off in Sweet. He was able to to do those kind of classic move the sticks uh, routes and catches that you you've seen from Craycraft for two mm-hmm. and a half years, where you know that that's kind of the wide position's role is to run those mesh routes, get 12 yards downfield. But then on that 36-yarder, you know, he, he shook a guy. He showed great instincts and awareness because if, if you notice in that one, there was actually a, a guy chasing him who was kind of about to get him, and he, he sort of sensed him and used the blocker that he knew was behind him to get away from that guy, and that's what opened up the final 15 or so yards. He yeah. really showed great speed, great instincts. And, it, you know, well, you want to get Craycraft back as soon as possible, assuming that Craycraft isn't back all that quickly because he did leave the sidelines and go to the locker room and never came back. But it looks like Sweet's ready to step in and play. You talked also, or we'll talk again about injury. The offensive line really stepped up without Joe Dahl. And again, we have no idea how long he may be out for. But they really stepped up. Gunnar Eklund shifted over to left tackle. They had a couple more guys shift around, and I think – I remember you remarking on Saturday there were guys playing their their first time starting at this position on Saturday and against such a blitz happy defense like Arizona State I'll grant you they didn't blitz as much as they normally do but that offensive line held up really well after the game they had to be pretty happy with their performance uh, when they were talking to you right yeah well you know at about halftime I, I checked the stats and I think it was 
uh, three sacks and something like five QB hurries. And they they were they were doing their best. They were you know they were trying hard, and it wasn't a disaster. It wasn't one of those uh, games where the quarterback is just unable to function because he's constantly under pressure. It wasn't mm-hmm. your average Seahawks game, is what I'm saying. But after halftime or after the game, I looked at the stats again, and it was basically the same. It was three sacks, five QB hurries, and that, you know really after halftime, and you know really after the first quarter, it just seemed like they were they were fine. They were settled. Uh, you expected Gunnar Eklund to, to hold up okay because he was a 12-game starter at left tackle in 2013, and that's you know that's ostensibly the most important position on the offensive line. Right. That's fine. And Eduardo Middleton, you know, he had one of the best off seasons of anyone on the team. He, he did great in the spring. He did great in fall camps. He's done pr- pretty well during the season. You know, you you figured he can figure it out. He'll. He's not gonna. He might, you know, misread a guy on a blitz or get confused with the alignment. But it, it, he's not gonna just get, you know, he's not gonna get his butt kicked out there. But you know, Jacob Sadel held up really well for a guy that just had not played. He's only played a couple snaps before, played a couple games at tackle. Now all of a sudden he's playing at right guard for the first time in a game in his life, and it just didn't really seem to bother him all that much. And you know, like you said, it. Physically, Arizona State was the number one sack team in the Pac-12, so they're they're really good at it. Mm-hmm. But a lot of why they're really good at it is because they confused the team. You know, they. I, I think one of the reasons they didn't run the ball all that much might have been because it's it's kind of hard to read those run and pass boxes when you've got three guys set up on the defensive line on one side, you got another one here, you've got all these blitzers to take account of. You don't really know what they're going to do. Yeah. So the fact that the offensive line was able to account for that with three guys uh, starting at that position for the first time in this season and two guys playing a position they've never really played in a game really speaks volumes to not, you know, not only the coaching and how well they play, but just the depth the team has right now. We're now three quarters of the way uh, through the season, sitting at six and three, three games left to go. And I think, you know, we did expect the defense to be better uh, just because it would be hard to get worse than they were last year. But you had a first year coordinator in Alex Grinch coming in. You had um, some better talent maybe coming off a of red shirt. You had Hercules Mataafa coming off uh, a red shirt. You had all these other guys uh, coming in that you might have been excited about. But I don't know if any of us could have expected uh, the defense getting this much better. And it's just kind of a credit to what Alex Grinch has been preaching with these guys in takeaways and just how he's been coaching them, especially how much better the secondaries look this year. Oh, absolutely. You know what I think one of the most telling things about the defense this year, too, is it's not like anyone's just emerged as this surefire second-round pick NFL superstar that's really kind of leading the charge here. I mean, you you have players stepping up and making plays. Marcellus Pippins clearly has very good instincts. You know, his the interceptions he's had, he really sniffs those, the ball out quickly. Uh, he had that diving pass breakup against uh, Arizona State that prevented a, an explosive play. And, you know, it was really just a very impressive play. So, you know, you, you've got a good play cornerback. Um, you've got, uh, you know, Parker Henry's obviously stepped up very much. Uh, you've got a couple guys like uh, Chandler Lemieux and uh, Logan Tago, who you didn't really have last year in the same manner, who are, who are making good plays for you. But it's not like... It's not like all of a sudden Destiny's a, a first-round pick, you know. It's not mm-hmm. like uh, Daniel Ekoale or Robert Barber have just exploded into these monster senior seasons and are dragging the rest of the defense along with them. You know, it's it's really just guys that you already had on the team. You, you know, you already had Jeremiah Allison. You already had Peyton Pluer. 
who are just really kind of maximizing their talent. They're playing about as well as they can play. They're they're making a lot of third and short stops, a lot of fourth and short stops when they need to in these critical situations. And, you know, they're starting to get some turnovers. They're starting to, uh, like I said, kind of force the offense into uh, some three and outs, some four and outs, and that's made it a lot easier for their offense and Luke Falk to not have to feel like they always constantly have to make the big play, make the big scoring drive that you mm-hmm. saw last year where, you know, I think a really telling stat is the fact that last year Halliday had, a, you know, the passing offense had something like 10 passing plays at 40 or more yards. This year they've got maybe one or two. They don't, they don't feel like they have to take these huge shots downfield because they understand that, you know, if they punt the ball away, there's a pretty decent chance the defense is going to get them the ball back. And, yeah. And the fact that they're doing that with basically the same guys they had last year, plus Shalom Luwani, really is uh, quite impressive in my opinion. We've got three games left to go in the season, as I mentioned. We're three quarters of the way done at six and three, and we talked a little bit about this with Yogi Roth. And you're you're talking to the team as as much as I'll let you talk to the team in terms of press availability. But do you get the sense that these guys are? you know, kind of looking forward to playing these next three games because it'd be easy to kind of get down and relax a little bit now that you are at that magic six number. I don't think you get the impression uh, that they're happy with half a dozen in the win column, though, are they? No, and you know, one thing I think that really does get underrated is just how important these games in Los Angeles are to a lot of these players on the team. You know, this is a game that Dom Williams really wants because he knows that this is one of the you know, what's it been two, maybe three times in his career, he's going to have a lot of family members around. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- that's true for something like 35 to 40% of the team mm-hmm. where, you know, they don't play in Los Angeles all that often, but they've got a lot of family and friends in the area and they want them to come out. You know, they, uh, it is, and it's something they've spent all season preparing for. These guys are trying to figure out how to get tickets because there aren't that many because UCLA obviously sells a lot of their tickets and this was expected to be a very good season for the Bruins. And, you know, they're they're allotted some, so they've been making trades. They're figuring out ways to to get an extra ticket for a family member here or there. So, you know, as as much as they don't want to take make any game bigger than any other game this is a game by necessity they've had to be thinking about for a while because they've had to be planning for it they've mm-hmm. had family members you know they've had grandma say oh i'm going to come to the ucla game can't wait to see you and it's you know it's a really big deal for them so i certainly don't think they're going to be anything less than very very amped for this one yeah and then after that colorado maybe that's a trap game because that's a game you're thinking, okay, if we didn't get number seven in UCLA, we certainly can get it now. If you did get win number seven in UCLA, you're definitely thinking, all right, eight win season at least with a chance for nine against the Huskies. This is, you know, we're, we're killing it right now. Mm-hmm. And either way, you got the Apple Cup coming up after that. And that's, you know, no matter what, that's going to be a big, exciting game for everybody. So, you know, if there's one game that it, you'd really kind of worry about being a trap game, it would be, uh, it would be that Colorado game. I, I definitely don't think anyone's worried about the Apple Cup being a trap game. No. I mean, it's, the, it's the last game of the season. It's the Huskies. So, of the two games, I think they're going to be very, very motivated for the Colorado game. They're, you know, you, you got to create your own motivation for that. But it's the last home game of the season, even though it's the, basically the worst possible kickoff time for getting fans in the stadium. You gotta, <laughs> yes, there's it gonna is. Be some fans yep. there. And, you know, Colorado hasn't won a whole lot of Pac-12 games, so maybe you can afford to not play your best game and still pick up that W. 
We'll leave Jacob Thorpe off with this question. Uh, after the game on Saturday, Mike Leach had a nice little quip that I think everybody in the room kind of laughed about where when somebody asked him what kind of adjustments they made, he said, well, we just used the signs we stole from them in the first quarter and uh, we had a little more success with that in the second half. I've kind of been in the opinion all week or all of last week and Brian Anderson was as well and a few others of us were that this didn't necessarily bother Mike Leach too much, but it got in Todd Graham's head a little bit. Is that probably what it was? Because I can't imagine Mike Leach was too bothered or too worried about the fact that ASU might be taking some signs from him. Well, you know, it, it is interesting, uh, Michael, because it's certainly one of those things that probably everyone does to some extent. Yeah. And the reason, you know, and it certainly could be that Todd Graham is taking a lot of heat for something that's just slightly more than the norm or, you know, kind of generally accepted practice. You did hear some of the Oregon coaches say, I've never seen someone go to this extent. But that, you know, that may just mean that someone on the Arizona State sideline has some, you know, binoculars and is, you know, mm-hmm. really trying to get the signs or that they're calling it a little bit quicker. I really doubt it's something that, you know, bothers Leach too much. I think if anything, it's probably kind of a really do you're you're going to try that hard to steal our signals. Yeah. But I think uh, I think it's a line that he thought was really funny, and I think it's one he was uh, he had ready and loaded to go because he also <laughs> said it to a the sideline reporter on his way off the field. Uh-huh. So you know, it, it, it was it was a good line. It was a good singer. I think you know I, I wouldn't be shocked if over beers in the off season, uh, Leach and Graham laugh about it. Frankly, but. Uh, you know, no, I, I, I don't think it was this kind of shots fired situation oh, where, no. you know, now we've got this yeah. back and forth between the Arizona State coach and the Washington State coach. Jacob Thorpe will be with the team this weekend when they head to the Rose Bowl in the Arroyo Seco, Pasadena, whatever you want to call it. All those homes are just way too big getting to the stadium. So Jacob Thorpe can drive to the game and dream a dream like I always used to when I was driving through there. Thanks, big guy. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right. Coming up next, we're going to end the show as usual. Dunderhead of the Week and Ask Michael Anything on the Coop Center Hour. time for the dunderhead of the week after uh boy what a show what a freaking show right i mean we had a just a fantastic show and now we got to end with this sorry uh dunderhead of the week time goes this is uh the world of apps and you know venture capitalists and stuff in silicon valley and wherever else it's just it's basically just throwing money at whatever i'm still waiting for my vc offer on the kook center hour if somebody wants to buy it from me uh we we are open to selling we, we are very open to selling. But what <laughs> the latest app seen come out, uh, this one kind of brings it to a whole new level of stupidity. Uh, some of you folks who are single and young and hip and hip with it, uh, you listen to the, to, the, to the rap music, whatnot. Uh, you may be familiar with Tinder as a dating app on, uh, on your smartphones. It allows you to find... Single folks in your area to go on a date with, what have you. There's now a new app 
that I believe launched on Monday called Rumbler. And it is for people who want to fight other people. So you register on this app and you meet up to fight people. Like physically punch kick them. Uh, did anybody, like, think to consult with maybe, like, the police if this was a legal thing or not? I think because they're both consenting to it, it's not technically assault, maybe? But, on, on a list of things that definitely nothing's ever gonna go wrong with. <laughs> no, nothing, nothing bad will ever happen with this app. Uh, Rumbler, the app for people who want to beat the crap out of each other... Uh, you're the Dunderhead of the Week. I mean, that, uh, how long this app can last, how it can be worth... It, it's certainly not worth any money, but how it can last, like, any, in, any amount of time without something drastically going wrong, like somebody being killed or severely beaten by, like, four or five people, uh, it, it, it has to be, like, less than two days. And if you disagree with me, you can find me on Rumbler, and you can come to my apartment and fight me. Ask Michael anything time. Ask Michael anything time. First one comes from a family member, in fact. My sister, Kelsey. If uh, WSU wins this week and they're going to get enough votes to be ranked, that's a pretty popular question right now, isn't it? And uh, I think maybe, just kind of depends on how many other teams in the top 25 lose, but we did see, I believe Navy jumped into the top 25 after beating Memphis. Granted, Memphis, very good team and an unbeaten team. Uh, John Jason Childers on Twitter asking, and Taylor Taliulu's Wazoo song, there's a part where the defense is chanting. What are they chanting? I can only, I think it's like, I done fell in love with the Koofy. I have no idea. I'm like 27 and I'm not hip anymore. I was never hip in the first place, but it's like, I done fell in love with, and I think they're saying the Koofy. I think. At Death by 105, our own PJ Kendall, least desirable bowl location, Detroit, Montgomery, El Paso. Or Shreveport. I gotta go with the under the underdog bad one on this one. I'd probably say Montgomery. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of stuff to do in Montgomery, Alabama around Christmas. Now that there's a ton to do in Detroit, but maybe you can catch a Lions or a Pistons game or a Red Wings game or something. So you can do one of those things. El Paso's at least close to the Mexican border, so they gotta have some really good Mexican food down there. And Shreveport, again, you got some really good crawfish down there, I think. So it's probably gotta be Montgomery, Alabama. At Wazoo Crew 11, what's the deal with Mike Leach's hat selection? Who thought the black hat was a good idea? Probably someone who spent some time at the U of Dub, I think. Uh, at Double BS 13, pants off for the first or second show. We got two shows this week, and it's a trick question, apparently. He says, I say for both. Let's do it for both. At Jimmy the Coog, I was called old by a friend for doing an over and back from the west side to the ASU game. Does this stigma have validity? I mean, kinda, maybe. If you don't, you know, if you, you don't think you can you know, put up with a full weekend in Pullman, maybe. But if you can't afford it, I mean, like, I don't see a problem with doing that. Or if you don't have the time, like, maybe you're like me, you got to work on weekends and you only want to take one day off. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I just, I, yeah, I, I find that to be, no, there's nothing wrong with that kind of thing. Uh, at Coogs, where do you want the bowl? Have you ever had pizza at Cellas? It's amazing. Uh, will Nooser ever grow about Leech? Uh, I want the bowl in Fort Worth because it's on a Tuesday and I have Tuesdays off. So I want the Armed Forces Bowl. Uh, have you ever had the pizza at Sellers? No, I actually don't like Sellers as I've said in the past. I'm not a big fan. And will Nooser ever eat crow about Leech when he eats his shoe? That's about the time he'll finally do it. Uh, at Mr. Tommy G, man, if you could cast an actor to play Reed Forrest in a movie, who would it be? 
Oh, man. Ryan Gosling. Actually, you know what? Ryan Gosling, I think, kind of does look like him. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. UCLA 38, Washington State 34 this weekend. UCLA's defense, really good. But another good game coming up this week. Another show coming Thursday here on the Coop Center Hour.